Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Delighted to say I'm here with Chuck Blakeman. Chuck Blakeman is a business guy who writes about it and talks about it. <laughs> He's also one of the several chief transformation officers at the Crankset Group. I mean, he's had a, a stunning business career you know, as an entrepreneur, two of your businesses uh, spanning four continents. And uh, the two particular books uh, that you have written uh, as a business guy is uh, uh, Why Employees Are a Bad Idea and uh, Making Money is Killing Your Business. I've read the, the, uh, the first of those two. Um, so delighted to have you here today, Chuck. Oh, it's great to be with you, Richard. And uh, where are you joining us from? Denver, Colorado, just, Denver. just south of the, just below the mountains. Nice. Well, it's, it's great to have you. So, oh God, there's so many places we could start here, but maybe we should just ask in summary, like in a nutshell, why are employees such a bad idea? I mean, clearly they make the world go yeah. around, they, all these workers. Yeah, and people think I'm, you know, I don't like employees or I don't like people. That's not true at all. It's, it's actually a historical thing. The word employee, I like to redeem words. Like, I think we get into a whole, uh, whole conversation on redeeming capitalism. And actually, for thousands of years, it was a very good thing. Uh, employee has no good history. It's not a redeemable word. The first mention of, of manager and employee is basically in Hammurabi's code 5,000 years ago. And it's talking about slavery. And the, the employees are the slaves. And if you have people who don't want to be there, you have to lord people over them with a whip. And those people are called managers. And off we go. So throughout history, that has never been a positive relationship. It has always been a, an adversarial relationship. And it's always been built on the concept that, uh, that was summarized by a guy named Frederick Winslow Taylor. In 2009, he wrote a paper, or 2000, uh, in, in 1909, 1903, he wrote a paper called Shop Management. And in, in 1911, he revised it. He called it Scientific Management. You may not know who Frederick Winslow Taylor is, but you, you know who Peter Drucker is. Peter Drucker was one of the top management consultants of the 19th, uh, 20th century. He said Frederick Winslow Taylor had as much impact on the world in the 20th century as Freud, Darwin, and Marx. So this man, this man had some, uh, you know, had, had some uh, impact. And he wrote in his paper, uh, he, he defined employee with two fatal assumptions. Number one, People are generally stupid. And this is a quote from the paper. The average employee is so stupid, they more resemble the ox than any other type. You may have heard this statement in the past. You know, that that guy's as dumb as an ox. That's where it comes from, from that guy's paper. The second wow. fatal assumption is people are generally lazy. And he called it soldiering. They will only work so hard as to not get fired. And Robert Kiyosaki uh, uh, continued this definite, or this tradition. He defines employee, the, the concept of employment as the following. You will work only so hard as to not get fired, and I will pay you only so much as to, that you won't quit. Mm -hmm. It's just a horrible relationship. So the word has nothing, there's nothing redeemable about that relationship. We can't use that word. So we have to find another way to, to describe people and redeem them. So I like words like, stakeholder, team member, associate, colleague, give me something that doesn't have a, a horrible history to it uh, because th that word simply is not redeemable. It has too much on top of it. So it's an, it starts with the idea of, of being adversarial. If people are generally stupid and lazy, Richard, how do you solve that? There's only one way to solve that. You find the very rare, smart, and motivated ones and you lured them over the stupid and lazy ones to force them to work. And thus, management was born. <clears throat> I mean, is there any wonder why we have such an adversarial relationship? If you start with, hey, that dude's not going to work unless I'm standing over him. And even when he does, he's barely, you know, he's barely alive. But it's just such an insult. So it's not redeemable. So we got to find another way to approach people in the world around us. And from Frederick Winslow Taylor's research on through to today, every bit of research is so disappointing to CEOs because it basically, every CEO wants to find out that if they make their machines run faster, they'll make more money. If they find a better piece of software, they'll make more money, if they, et cetera, et cetera. Every piece of, of research says, given all that, the company that treats their people like adults and is nice to them makes more money. 
every single time. Now, that's very disappointing to, to a traditional top-down CEO because he's transactional, he's not relational, he or she, and they want to figure out how to make the machine run faster. They don't have time for this nonsense, human nonsense. So after, in probably in the 30s or 40s, we got sick of hearing this thing, and the CEOs found somebody and said, look, would you just take care of the people? I know the damn research says that, that you know, we got to do that. That's not my job. I'm going to take care of the business. You take care of the people. And thus, a human resources was born. And so we farmed out the idea that, that people, uh, we had to treat people nice. And we gave it to somebody who nobody respects in the, you know, from the operational side of the business. They're just the, the namby-pamby, uh, wimpy side. It, it's such a broken relationship. So that's why employees are always a bad idea. We need something else. Give us a different kind. Give, give, give us a different start. Right. And, and where did your you know, passion around this topic begin? Did you start out on more of the traditional side and have no, a moment? No, I, I didn't. Or have you always I, it, had this in your heart? No, I, I just have a different view of the world. And it took me decades to figure that out. I, I'm ADHD, uh, left-handed, right-brained, and dyslexic. I graduated near the bottom of my high school class. Uh, I, you know, I didn't understand the whole concept of, of education the way it was presented. Back then, the only thing they understood was right, uh, left-handed. They didn't like that either. So I just had a different view of the world. I, was, I went to music school <laughs> because it was the only thing I felt like I could do to make myself uh, uh, you know, uh, a contributing member of the world around me. And I joined the Army Band uh, because I'm pretty, I was pretty sure nobody would ever employ me. Uh, and in the Army Band, I kind of accidentally started a business. And then I started another one. Then I got out of the Army and started another one. And Fast forward, I've started 13 businesses in 10 industries on, on four continents now. And, and I guess I have something to contribute to the world around me. But the point of that rant is I've never done it from the traditional view of the world. And I've, I, one of my great strengths, I think, is also my, one of my great weaknesses. is I never look around and ask, how did somebody else do this? Mm. If there's something that I need to do, I ask myself, what does that person or that situation need? How can I help them or that situation? And I just try and solve the problem. Instead of looking around and saying, well, who else has solved this or who else has tried to solve this and how did they do it? And that's a great, you know, there's some weakness in that, but there's also some strength in that you don't, you don't poison the well with all the other assumptions of what people said can or cannot be done. Yeah, and you never went to business school. You never had Taylorism implanted no, in your No, thank God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank God I never went to business school. You know, I, I, I tell people who, who come to me and say, uh, I want to get an MBA. I said, well, if you, want to, uh, if you want to live in a giant corporation and have no brain, get an MBA. Because that's what they'll teach you to do. They'll teach you to stop thinking and figure out how to uh, live invisibly and and basically walk up the, the quietly up the totem pole as other people die or, or get fired. It's a horrible existence inside those corporations. I, I, I know multiple people who are at Bank of America, at pre director and vice president levels, who all did the whole thing through 30 years and said, hated every minute of it, hated it, despised it, couldn't wait to get out. But it was 30 years and I made a buttload of money. Uh, I call that prostitution. Right. You know, yeah. Prostitution, it, there's a difference between being a sex worker and a prostitute. To me, a, a sex worker does it willingly for whatever they're, you know, they're actually enjoying, they're finding it meaningful. A prostitution is doing something for money that you would otherwise not do. Mm. And a lot of corporate America is in that, that boat. So I thankfully did not go through the, the, uh, the poisoning of that whole thing because I would have come out with the same perspective of what could or could not be done. Mm. Mm. I've got to say, I'm intrigued. What was that business when you were uh, in the band, in the army? Let's see, which one was that first one? Um, I, I think it was the landscaping business. Yeah. I landscaped my house and somebody knocked on my door and said, who did that? And I said, I did. And the guy said, well, I just bought 80 acres and I'm putting in 160 houses. Would you, you know, would you send me a plan on how you would do that? And so I went to the library that night and figured out how to build a landscaping plan. And I sent him one and off we went. So I was doing that on the side. <laughs> what did you play? Clarinet. 
yeah. And I went on and played in symphonies and that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, it was it was a, a, a starter place to to start out in my life to find a way to 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 see what my meaning was in life and how I could actually contribute. Right. Do you still play clarinet? I did for a long time. I would play uh, here and there. My my sister played in the San Francisco Symphony. She would drag me into things I didn't belong in, and but it took too much energy. It's like trying to play golf once every a uh, couple of months with, uh, on the pro circuit. Uh, you still right. have to golf every day, and and you start to practice and keep your, your chops up every day. It just it wasn't worth it. Uh, mm. I, I loved music, but uh, I quit fifteen or twenty years ago. Right, and so. Uh... You got into landscape. So you 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 left the army. What did the business took off? The landscape. Yeah, business I, did, took- I did leadership development in the army as well, which is is a joke because I think I was twenty four. I can't imagine how many people I damaged with that <laughs> at the age of twenty four. But so yeah, there were a couple of things I I did there. My my life vision very early on. I saw this statement from a guy in a book, and I took it on. Uh, he died in nineteen fifty four, but his his life statement I, I took it on as my own, and, the, and it's a question. Why do what others can and will do when there's so much to be done that others can't or won't do? Mm. So why be an accountant if somebody's got that figured out? Great. You know, why be a school teacher if somebody else has got that figured out? So that's my adventure in life is I've always looked for the holes and the things that haven't been figured out. And pretty much all of the businesses I have either came and found me like that one or in most cases, I went and found a, a way to solve a problem that other people said either wasn't solvable or just was, I didn't feel like it was being solved the way it could be. Mm. Right. And, and so is that one way of framing what you're doing now, right? You've got this yeah. problem of hollowed out, you know, corporations. Yeah, the, exactly. The, co- the corporation is a pyramid scheme. You know, let's just call it what it is. Uh, and, and I'm not, you know, I'm not being facetious. I'm not trying to be cute here. It is a pyramid scheme. Pyramid schemes are illegal in the U.S. Why? Because they're designed specifically to, to use the people at the bottom to benefit the people at the top. That's the basic problem with a pyramid scheme. And that is illegal. There are laws against it. Welcome to corporate America. Corporate America is specifically designed to use the people at the bottom to benefit the people at the top as much as possible. And we will do as little, we will pay you as little as we have to in order to keep you from getting, from leaving. But, but it is designed to, to benefit, to use others to benefit uh, us. And, and that's not capitalism, by the way, that's industrialism. That's a whole, that's, a, that's another book I'm writing, but. Uh, it's, but you it's do address little, that significantly in the book, right? Yeah, I do. I, yeah, I, I get into that a little bit because, because big corporations more often than not reflect Marxism and other interesting things that they would say they're, you know, they're, they would say they're capitalists, they're not, they're industrialists and centralized control and centralized production and, and uh, no competition and uh, power in the hands of the few. And there's a lot of things that do that in the same. So, so yeah, that's part of my, you know, why do others can't, why, why do what others can and will do? There's something to be done here and we have to, we are still stuck. Uh, I did a TED talk. Where they they approached me. I don't know, uh, fifteen years ago, and said, "Hey, do a TED talk on this." And and I did a TED talk on the participation age because I love that terminology. I stole it from uh, somebody at Wired magazine, used it in two thousand six, and I I really appreciated it because it, it it names it's the first it's the first use of people in a in the naming of an age. We we name ages after rocks and metal and technologies and stuff and things. What if we named an age after people? What a, what a concept. What if we were in the participation where people want to participate in building a great company and want to, to uh, share in the re- rewards, participation and sharing. And, and so that's, that's what the, the hole in the, uh, the world right now in the, in the corporate world is that people actually think that we are supposed to be doing things this way. I was hired by Google uh, probably four or five years ago, uh, by I was very honored to be hired by their their their. Uh, it was an international team of people basically trying to figure out how to redesign Google to get their mojo back. And it was a very short engagement because I uh, I was on my heels the whole time I was with them. I was stunned at how archaic Google is. It mm. is a 1903 factory. Everything about it culturally, 
1903 factory. People say they have a great culture. No, they don't. They have great perks. And you put great perks in place a lot of times because you have such a horrible culture. Uh, sorry. That happens. Yeah. 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 And so you, you have, you know, you, you can dress down and, and get free lunches and on campus activities and, and uh, do whatever you want on Friday. But the fact is you have no control of your life, no saying who you're going to be working for next. It's all a top down, highly top down pyramid scheme. Uh, very much so. And all of technology is technology world is probably the most advanced te technologically and the most archaic. But the point of this rant is, Richard, that most of most companies are still stuck in the industrial age. Mm. They just don't know it because they have they've replaced the, the, the smokestacks and, and the assembly lines with clean rooms and digital technologies. But the front office looks exactly like it did in 1903. Guys in ties. Uh, telling people what to do in a command and control structure. It hasn't changed since Frederick Winslow Taylor. We got to move that. We got to move the needle on that because it's destructive. Again, it's dehumanizing people. That's my third book that came out recently, Rehumanizing the Workplace. We got to rehumanize. Uh, and, and it's such a foreign concept to us that, that it's not actually a word. Dehumanize is a word. Mm. Think about this for a second. Dehumanize, you can find it in the dictionary. Try and find rehumanize. It's not in there. Your, your software will correct you. There's no such thing as rehumanizing anything. You can dehumanize it. That's okay. <laughs> we can dehumanize work, but eh, we're not going to rehumanize it. That doesn't work. We're not going to do that. Right. Well, come on then. How do we, how do we rehumanize? Like where, where do people start? They're listening yeah, well, to this. It, 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 it starts with the, the, the basic operating system of, uh, the industrial age that we still have with us. We are still in a pyramid scheme. And in my, my last book, I called it, the first chapter was titled Lipstick on a Pig. Because for the last 150 or 200 years, ever since we codified the industrial complex uh, structure, we've known that it doesn't work. And we're constantly throwing lipstick on that pig to try and fix it. But it's still the pig. So we've done everything matrix organizations and you know, just we've tortured the thing to death and not changed it. Uh, and, we and, and so until we change it, nothing's going to change. We have to start and we have to put in a new operating system, which is very painful to do. But the operating system is the top-down pyramid scheme that's developed to use the people at the bottom to, to help the people at the top. And that has to be dismantled. And it's not necessarily about coming out flat, although there is a flatness to it. It's, the difference would be between imposed hierarchy and organic hierarchy. Hierarchy is an inevitable thing in human uh, organization. People organize, and when you organize, you, you immediately have a hierarchy. If you put 15 people on a desert island, uh, within 30 minutes, you're going to have a hierarchy because somebody's better at building boats. Somebody else is better at motivating and inspiring. Somebody else is better at finding the food. And so I'm going to follow different people on different things and you have a hierarchy, but it's organic. And so how I would change this would be, I would throw out the, the management system that uh, it has been an utter failure for 200 years. And I'd replace it with a leadership system. And people look at that and say, well, I don't know. That sounds like the same thing. Well, that's, prop that's a problem with the leadership consulting uh, world. If you, if you lined up 100 leadership consultants and asked them, what's the difference between management leadership or write down the differences, they might have over in the margins certain things that are clearly management, certain things that are clearly leadership, but most of it's the same thing. That's what they would come up with. Most of it just conflates. And that is not true. If they were, if they were the same thing, there wouldn't be two, two different words for them. John Cotter, the uh, Harvard uh, professor, former Harvard professor, is in my court, at least with the idea that, Harvard, that management and leadership have nothing in common. Hmm. Nothing. They're completely different animals. And I would say this. Yeah, I would go farther than Cotter. I would say management of people is always bad. It's never good. It can't be. As soon as you try and manage a person is an inherently bad thing because it harkens back to the principles of management that we still work on. Peter Drucker says everything in the modern management system is built off of Frederick Winslow Taylor's paper that says people are stupid and lazy. 
And as soon as you try and manage people, you are communicating that, that they are either stupid or lazy or I'm more smart and motivated, which is the same thing. So it's an inherently bad structure. It dehumanizes immediately. When, when I have to tell you what to do, I turn you back into a child. Management of children is a really, really good thing. Why? Because they are uh, cognitively stupid, you know, and they're, and they're, you know, they're, they're uh, lazy in the sense that they don't have all the faculties developed yet to be able to get along in the world without us. Mm. So we have to manage them. It would be stupid not to. But, it, but the whole point of managing children is to get them to grow up to where you don't manage them. And there's all kinds of psychological problems when we don't do that. Right. We still do that with people in businesses. People buy houses. People decide who they're going to marry. They, they make huge decisions on careers and family and all sorts of things. But as soon as they cross the threshold at work, they have to turn their brains off because they're not the manager. Mm. And only managers can make decisions because the rest of you are stupid and lazy in some small format or another. We wouldn't say that. We just live it out. By, by putting people over other people. Here's the proof of this. <clears throat> Get me one paper ever written, one bit of research ever written, that demonstrates that managers, a manager of a team of eight people, makes them more productive. That study has never been done. We built our entire industrial factory system complex on the concept that, that Hammurabi started with, that if you have people who are stupid and lazy, you got to have somebody lording over them, otherwise they won't work. And we have never demonstrated that it works, that it's actually true. I can give you thousands of resources and hundreds of papers, hundreds of pieces of research that demonstrate that managers are the biggest problem in business. And managers make people stupid and lazy that the presence of a manager causes people to turn their brains off. So it's, it's an operating system problem. We've got to start with the operating system and change the operating system. And the way we do that is we actually, uh, we throw things against the wall and say, here's all the stuff that needs to be done. <laughs> so here's a process. And here's a result we want. Here's a result we want. Here's the process to get us that result. Here's the responsibilities around those things. Let's put them on the wall. And here's 10 people sitting in chairs uh, who, who are part of the team. There used, there used to be nine people and a manager. Manager fired himself, and he joined the other 10 people, and he sat down. And then one of the people says, all right, let's take number one. Who of us do we think would be best at covering the responsibility on number one? And some, from, somebody says, hey, I think uh, Fred would be really good at that. And other people say, yeah, Fred would be really good at that. And somebody says to Fred, hey, Fred, do you think you'd be good at that? Fred says, yeah, I'd be good at that. All right, let's give that one to Fred. Fred now has leadership. Yeah. And we do that with all 10 things. And you might find that the, the former manager ends up with five of them, of the 10 things. But they go back to work uh, with everybody else, and they, they have a productive life along with the five things. And maybe they, they produce 50% because they're busy with the other 50%. But you're going to take those 10 things and spread among, amongst uh, three or four people, maybe five. Google did this tortured research, and in 2003, they were onto this idea that managers were a bad idea. <clears throat> and then, by the way, that was the working title of the book to begin with. Managers are always a bad idea, but you know, employees are even worse of an idea. So they, in 2003, uh, Google declared the end of managers. Big deal. All, hit all the news. Manager, uh, managers are gone at Google. We're no longer going to have managers. Probably about three months later, they sheepishly rolled that or uh, pulled that all back in and said, yeah, no, we're going to have managers. We need managers. And then they spent the next two years justifying the decision. Uh, so you, you start looking for an answer to justify your decision, you know what you're going to come up with. They spent two years studying what employees need to be successful. We mm -hmm. call them stakeholders. And they found that there are eight things that stakeholders need to be successful. Ten years later, they did another study and found two more things. So they got 10 things that people need to be successful at work. Things like metrics, encouragement, uh, clarity about their roles. Um, one of the 10 things, by the way, is not to be micromanaged. Fascinating. And they, they took these 10 things and they said, okay, look at all these things people need in order to be successful. Therefore, managers are absolutely essential.
Now, I don't, you know, this is like a, in college, if you're going to study logic, you know, this is like logic 101. This is bias confirmation and all kinds of, this is a, a leap that makes no sense. Why do you assume that managers are the only way to deliver those 10 things? What if you put those 10 things on the wall and had 10 people and sat down and said, who could handle being in the, in the encourager in the group? Who wants to take on that leadership responsibility? Hey, Fred's always encouraging. Let's have Fred do it. You know, I, I, people think I hate managers, Richard. I don't. I hate management because mm -hmm. it turns good people into uh, either into insufferable narcissists or more often than not, it, it defeats them. Management is a godlike position. There's these 10 things you need. I don't know any human being on earth that can supply me all 10 of those things. They're a setup for failure right out of the gate. A super manager might be able to do six of them, maybe seven, but I'm going to be torqued at him because the other three are missing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to see that all the time. What if you took those 10 things and spread them amongst 10 people? You're going to find that probably three or four of those 10 people have two or three each of those things that they're rock stars on and all 10 of them are being covered. So that's a different operating system. And here's the fundamental difference. I would claim that for the most part, with rare exceptions, there are no leaders in corporate America. Mm -hmm. There can't be. Because nobody ever gets to choose who's the, who they're following. And leaders have followers. Managers have reports. Yeah. And someone walks in and says, here's your new manager. You will follow them. You will report to them. You don't have a choice. I'm not asking you. This is your new person. You have to do whatever they tell you. And so this is your new warden mm. or your, your, your new prison officer. And I'll be in my office. What if we took that away and we actually gave people the, the ability to follow the people who actually add value to their lives? Well, that's really scary to the, yeah. to the, operating, to the existing operating system. And it's one of the reasons that they have trouble with this idea is they think that if we did this, they'd create chaos and anarchy. And yeah, on the way to something good, uh, terrible things would happen. That's not the case at all. It never happens that way. As soon as you uh, begin to, to dismantle the management system, productivity goes up, people take more responsibility. It never creates chaos and anarchy if you do it right. And the way you do it right is very simple, Richard. You add value, you add things instead of subtracting things. Google did it wrong. Google subtracted managers and created a vacuum. Mm. Now what do we do? For 200 years, we've been following somebody else who just tells us what to do. Now there's nobody. Oh, my goodness. Chaos and anarchy. Uh, how about if you added something instead? Leave the manager in place right now and, and have the manager uh, take one of the things they do and see who on the team might want to be able to do that and give that person. And over, over six months, three months or so, they might look at the manager and say, well, you know, you're either irrelevant or you can rejoin us uh, and be right. productive member of society. Or, you know, we really like what you're doing. You're going to be one of the major leaders in this. So we try and turn managers into leaders. And they get very motivated by that, the, the good mm. ones. Yeah. The ones who know that they're gaming the system and don't have anything to contribute don't like this at all because they're going to be voted off the island. Right. What about in the scenario that, okay, so we, we haven't got chaos, but there are stuff that just must get done. Yeah. And unless we have someone to tell someone to do those tasks that nobody <laughs> wants to do, those really important right. yeah. tasks won't get done. What about that? Yeah. So you could have a manager do that or you could have a leader do that. And if you put it on the board that says we need clarity, we need process, we need direction, we need vision. These are all things we need. And then we ask ourselves, who could give us that? And we, just, and we point at Bob. And, you know, talents are very obvious. We're rarely going to get this wrong. And if we do, we're going to be able to correct it. Managers get this wrong all the time. That guy can't give us clarity. He doesn't give us direction. He's terrible at vision. He's but we have to, we're stuck with them. Well, what if you had a team of 10 people who could provide these things to each, for each other or a company of 1,000 who voted on who their leader is? Cortex has 12,000 people. The chief troublemaker uh, is a woman, and she was voted on. And everybody was surprised that she became the leader of the company, including her. 
but she's the right person for the job. Uh, and she's a leader. And how she knows she's a leader? Because she has a bunch of followers. You know, she wasn't she wasn't installed like the Pope. She was, you know, she was voted on by all the people around her. So, <clears throat> so that's the, you know, that's the the answer to this in, in the shorthand is everything you need in business, you can think uh, about who is it that you could, could do that for us. <clears throat> and then you vote on that person. And the the real beauty of this process is. When you're when you're trying to figure something out, the simple difference would be to always start with this 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 mindset: think people, not person. So Google started with ten things somebody needs in order to be successful, and they thought person. Who do I find? Who do we? Where do we find a person who can deliver all ten of these things? And they are still looking for someone who can do that. What if we simply change the plurality to, to plural and we started thinking people? Here's 10 things people need. Who, plural, can deliver those things? And we find those people and we say, yeah, would you be willing to do this? Because everybody says you're good at this. And then they say, yeah, let's have you do that. So it's not chaos and anarchy. It's actually tighter. There's actually more process. Every, every company that I've been to who does not use the industrial age factory system model and has moved to a participation age model to a T, every single one of them is more organized, more, more process driven, more metrics uh, uh, driven, and more, has more clarity on all those things than the traditional factory system businesses. <clears throat> I had a, a, a Twitter argument with a very famous, I won't name him, but he wrote books that were much more famous than me. Uh, million booksellers, and this guy, uh, leadership uh, management consultant, uh, wrote really famous books in the late 90s, early 20s, and he read an article I wrote for for uh, Inc. Magazine that basically said uh, people are actually good at self-management. They're not stupid and lazy. And he tweeted me, <clears throat> and he said, uh, if there's ever a, an airplane built by self-management, Make sure it's labeled because I'm not getting on it. Because it sounds like chaos and anarchy to him. He's mm. a traditional mm. top-down management consultant. How, how could that, how could it possibly not be uh, how dangerous? Could it possibly, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So to answer your question on all the things that have to happen, good golly, if these people are self-managed, this is not going to work at all. Well, this is how the argument always goes. It's not even a fair argument because my argument is full of data. And the argument for the industrialist factory system is full of emotion. Mm. Interestingly, interestingly enough, this person is known for their data, uh, you know, their data mining, their data research, and, and they're data driven. But this is an emotional thing. It has no data around it. So I respond with data. They respond with, they start with emotion. I respond with data. Dear so and so, can't even give you his first name because you'd guess him. Dear so and so. <coughs> Uh, there are eight General Electric uh, uh, um, engine factories in the in the world, and they make one third of all the engines for the big airplanes in the world. And all eight of those factories are self-managed. There are no managers in the factory anywhere. You are now going to have to take the bus from now on. <laughs> and this went, this argument went on for a year plus. He would throw another emotional thing at me. And I would come back to him with data, motion, data, emotion, and data. And finally, he just threw up his hands and said, well, this just sounds too hard. It's too difficult. And well, one of my friends who was working in the background who runs a company with 2,000 programmers, he had never been in the conversation. He's been watching it for a year. He's the, the leader of that company. And he says, yeah, I've, well, actually, I've been leading a company like this for 15 years now. And I find it incredibly easier. Well, that's been my experience on this podcast is the leaders of the self have the easiest lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's so ironic because you think, you know, managers are like, why would you do that when you could be a leader? Leaders have fun. They're, it's such a different view of the world. And here's, yeah, there are so many differences between leaders and managers. Here's one of them. Leader, managers go find data. You know, they go out on the shop floor with a, with a, uh, clipboard and they count stuff and they put it in a, and then they put it in a computer and they develop a little diagram and they go find data. 
No, the leaders don't do it. Leaders have the data come and find them. It's a lot more fun. How about if you had the team figure out what the data is, put the report together and send it to you? And, and you can decide whether it makes sense or not. If not, you get the team together because they've asked you to be the visionary leader. And, and you say, hey, have you seen what's going on with this report? No. Well, what about this? Oh, we didn't see that. That's why you're in this position. Yeah, how do we fix that? It's just, it's so much more fun. And, and it's one of the problems with this, Richard, is that people think if, they, if they're not managing, then what would I do with myself? Yeah. Well, there's three, there are three things that a leader, should, a leader should do, three responsibilities of leadership. And you could spend your entire life on these three and never be done. Number one is guard the values. Every leader's first responsibility is to guard the values, the culture, the vision, the mission, the, the relationships, the, the culture, the, you know, the intangibles that are so critical to productivity that 150 years worth of research says, this is what makes the difference between two companies. Given the same technology, the same assembly lines, the same every kind of other thing, one company has a great culture, one company doesn't. The one with a great culture will, will outperform the other exponentially. So guarding the values, number one. Secondly, is to, uh, to uh, not, uh, guard the values, number one. Um, I'm, I'm trying to find the right word for the people. It's not, uh, it's basically to lead the people, but the idea here is to resource the people. Mm. You can spend your entire, your, your, your entire uh, uh, week figuring out what resources do people need? Do they need training? Do they need guidance? Do they need mentoring? Do they need to get up against somebody else who already knows how to do this? Do they, do they need new software? What, what do they need? Do they need a new desk? Do they need better culture? How do I, how do, I do that with the people? So you guard the values and you resource the people. And the third one is to, uh, to make sure that you're piloting the results. You don't pilot, as a leader, you don't pilot the process. That's the, the team that should do that. You don't need a manager. You, have, you need 10 people who are committed to working together and they'll figure out a better process than any one manager. I've got so many stories on that. But uh, if, you, if, they're, if, you're, if they're sending you the data as one of the strategic leaders and you can't understand what they're doing on this little piece right here, the data doesn't make sense, you go back to them and you say, well, I'm piloting the results and here's the results you've sent me and they don't seem to line up with what we agreed should happen. So can we go back and look at your process together? You know, you guys came up with a process to get this result. I signed off on it because you wanted me to, because I'm, I'm the strategic leader that you've put in place. But let's go back and revisit that. And so you're going to pilot the process. I'm still not going to pilot the process. You're going to pilot that, but I'll pilot the, the results. So guard the values, resource the people, and, and, and pilot the process. You could spend your entire week, any person who used to be a leader could spend their whole existence on those things and never be done. Mm. And all mm. of those are services. They're servant-oriented things. The ancient Greek, the ancient Hebrew, the ancient Chinese pretty much uses the word leader very closely and in some kind, some, some way synonymously with servant. Leadership is servant and management is just the opposite. I, I heard somebody else say this once and I, I glommed onto it. When I meet a manager, I, find, I, I tend to find out that they're important. When I meet a leader, I find out that I'm important. <laughs> Right, right, right. But something I hear a lot, right, is like, oh, yeah, this servant leadership. Yeah, but I, it's all very well in certain contexts. But, you know, sometimes we just need to be able to hold people accountable. Yeah, well, absolutely. Everybody should be held accountable. And again, it's funny. These are the, I would call these emotional uh, or, or maybe not emotional, but unfounded arguments that every argument you're going to give me today, I want you to give them all to me, but every one you give to me, is an argument that needs to be given right now to the top-down factory system because it's not working there either. So what you just gave me was people need to be held accountable. Is that happening in corporate America? Absolutely not. Exactly, it's the biggest complaint. One oh of the my goodness, complaints. it's one of the biggest complaints people have. You know, I'm on a team of 10 people and, and four of them are goofing off. Yeah, but three of them are funny and one of them is my sister, so deal with it. I mean, you know, they're, they're, it's, there's no accountability. It's horrid. 
there's way more accountability in, a, in an organic system. And here's how it works. Uh, there, are, there is nobody hiring for the team. So there's a, a, there's a washing machine factory in, in Rio de Janeiro that hires the, 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 uh, each team of 10 people. They make their own washing machines. Each, there's no assembly lines. And they make washing machines faster and better than any assembly line. Henry Ford was wrong. Uh, you do not uh, speed up the world by making assembly lines. You speed up the world by motivating people. And these, uh, these uh, people, uh, there is an HR function who will feed them two or three or four candidates. But then they have the candidates come in and they work with the candidates and the 10 people who are already on the team decide who the 11th person is going to be. Mm-hmm. And if, the, if there's somebody not working, the 11 people on the team decide who, who you're together that that person needs to go and then they let them know. So, and how do they do that? Based on metrics. Because this, this is a very metric. This is not a squishy thing. The top-down pyramid is totally squishy. There's no, hardly any metrics involved in any of that stuff. It is, it's all power, uh, you know, peeing on the fire hydrant and, and squishy, uh, you know, goofy kinds of power struggles. And it's, you know, it's not based on metrics at all. What if work was based on metrics? <clears throat> In, in 1705, let's say I was a shoemaker, and there were two of us in town who made shoes. I made five pairs of shoes of very high quality every week, and people liked them. The other guy made three pairs of shoes of very low quality, and people didn't like that person. Who made more money? Hmm. Yeah. I did. It was based on metrics. Then you take those two people, you put them in a shoe factory, and you have them both pounding a nail on the left boot and passing it to somebody else to pound a nail on another nail. And they both get a 2.3% pay raise at the end of the year, and there's no separation between the two. And you know, there's no accountability for, for what you're doing. These people in the washing machine factory, they have to pay a fine. The, the, man, the leaders of that company pay a fine every year for not giving their people an appropriate wage, an hourly wage. Nobody in that company is paid by the hour. They're paid by the piece. Mm. So they're paid by how many, that team of 10 people has to produce a minimum of X number of washing machines a week in order to just keep their jobs because you know, they're taking up space. But everything after that, they make more money. Mm. And, and they make way more than any, people are climbing the walls to get into this company in Brazil who work in other factories at an hourly wage because these people make two or three times that. And so they make bucket loads more money and the Brazilian government still finds this company because they're not paying these people an hourly wage. (laughs) And so, so, and they're paid by the piece. So that's really important. If you think about it, Richard, if you're paid by the, by the production of the dishwasher or the washing machines, and there's three people really slowing you down or two people out of the 10 or 11 that are really slowing you down, you're going to do, first thing you're going to try and do is train them and motivate them because it's expensive and hard to replace people. Mm. but you're not going to put up with it yeah. because it affects your pocketbook. Yeah. 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 You're going to change it. You're going to move those people along. So <laughs> much more accountability in a participation age company. It was it's just, it, it, you're exposed, aren't you? You're exposed to one of your yeah, peers. I'm, I'm, I'm working with a company right now where they're changing everything from hourly and salary to production metrics. And you can do this with a front desk person. So you can do this with everybody. You can yeah. deal with production metrics. And this is a small company with like 25 people. And she knew, she said, before I did, before we went to this, I know there's two people who aren't going to get on board. Sure enough, those two people are not happy. <laughs> and and I, I asked her, so who are the two least productive people in your company? She says those two. Right. Those right, two. Right. And they don't like this because they're going to be exposed. Yeah. yeah. And, and they, and their complaint was those two people said, I don't like this because I'm probably, it's really possible that I could make less money. Mm-hmm. And the other 23 people looking at it saying, I really like this because it's probable I'm going to make more money. Yeah. It's set up that I could make less if I goof off or if I'm not good, I will make less than I used to. But if I'm de- you know, if I'm reasonable at my job and I'm professional, I'm going to make more than I used to. So uh, yeah, you, you've got to be metrics driven about everything you do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, 
And that story just reminds me of a, of a guest that we had on the podcast who was one of the leaders of Mapbox Systems. This is a company in the UK, engineering firm. Um, he, he said a couple of things. One, one was that what he noticed over time is he took all of the bosses and all of the managers out that the company was uh, the cars in the car park <laughs> changed to be more expensive <laughs> the cars over time because all of the workers are making that much more money. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What if we spread the wealth around? We call this capitalism. Funny thing. You know, what, what most people call capitalism is really industrialism. And it's a real simple difference. Capitalism always adds value as its primary motivation. Not, it doesn't make money as its primary. It adds value as its primary motivation. You want to make a great car, solve a problem. And it receives value based on how much value it has added. So it's about adding value in order to receive value. Industrialism is purely about extracting value and doing yeah. so by adding as little value as possible. The more separation we can make between adding value and extracting value, the better off we'll be. We call that you know, excess profit. And so if we can pay these people very little and extract as much productivity from them as possible without paying them what they're really worth, then we, we win. And your guys basically looked at it and said, yeah, what if we did this differently? What if we paid people for their, for their, for their, uh, their value? what they value, how the value they bring to the company. Everybody's going to make more money except the people at the top because they don't add as much value as they think they do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but in these systems, it's not like the people, this guy who, who's the co-owner of this company makes, now makes less money. It's like everybody wins, no. right? Like, because the company get, itself, everybody makes more money right. individually. The company itself makes more profit, yep. which he can take a bigger share. You know, he can take a share of as one of the principal shareholders. Yeah, I like, said that. Everybody wins. Yeah, managers throughout the hierarchy will, will disappear, so there's not those people. But the company as a whole will make more money, and whoever owns that company will make more money. Every single one of the companies I know of that are participation-age companies with these organic leadership structures uh, live at the top of their industries and their professions in every, in every category, productivity, profitability, growth, uh, culture, happiness. They, they're all living at the top. So. So that's the, that's the real sell in this, Richard. If you want, you may be happy with your, your top-down structure. You may be making a lot of money doing it. I guarantee you, you will make more and be happier if you get rid of it. Yeah. And it's not chaos and it, it won't be chaos and anarchy to do so. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess there's, there's one question that's come to mind. You know, sure. we, take, we take Google as an example. It's the okay, the culture sucks, it's dehumanizing, but, right, they are making a lot of money, they are yeah. contributing to the world. Like, what? is it such a big problem, right? Yeah. Um, so on a macro level, uh, you know, Adam Smith and others would say that capitalism can have an unintended effect of doing good in the world around it. That's not its purpose. I would argue with that. I believe that capitalism always does good. Industrialism has the unintended effect of, of it can't help itself. It will, also, it will also throw off some good in the world around it. So, yeah, there's some good coming out of all of the industrial companies. Absolutely. They made, some of them make incredible products and all that other stuff. That's not the question. The question isn't, are they doing okay? The question is, could they do better? And could they do both? Yeah. Could they be human? Could they be? Could they rehumanize their workplaces, give everybody their brain back, and still make what they're money making? My answer would be no. If they gave everybody their brain back, they would make more money. They would be better off. So there's no good reason for them to continue with the top-down hierarchy because it's not better. That's where the data comes in. It's, it's just not a fair, a fair fight. Uh, the data is all on the side of treating people like adults. And, and inviting them all to make decisions. We call it distributed decision-making. In my, my third book, it's the, simple, the simplest, most uh, uh, impactful thing you can do is distribute the decision-making to the people who will actually have to live with the decisions. Mm. And that rehumanizes the workplace all by itself. I, that one thing. Right. And in your experience of working with leaders who take this on, right, what, what, what's... What's the biggest challenge they 
they face for those making yeah. a transition? <laughs> it's a great question. The biggest challenge they face, I call it pushing water uphill with the rake when they first start. Uh, is the biggest challenge they face is the structure itself and the people who find themselves benefiting from the structure who would not benefit if the structure is gone. So the resistance comes from their own leadership or their own management. Again, they're not, they're, they're called leaders, but they're not. A, a great little book out there written 15 or 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago now called Maverick. Oh, I love that book. That got me started yeah. with this whole topic. Yeah. yeah. So uh, by Ricardo Semler, and he owns that washing machine factory and a bunch of other factories. And uh, it was th one of the things you read is you, uh, one of the things you see as you read this book is that uh, he's getting resistance all along the way that he's trying to do something uh, to flatten the structure, to make it organic. And where's he getting it? He's getting it first from his vice presidents, who he gradually removes over the first year or two. And then he's getting it from the directors who are left. And then he's getting it from the managers. He's always getting it from the people who want to guard their, uh, their kingdoms, their fiefdoms. Management is a fiefdom uh, or a kingdom-oriented structure. Leadership is a mission-oriented structure. Here's the difference. In a, in a traditional environment, you put together, the company puts together a, a, an annual strategic plan or annual, annual business plan. And the technology department, that's a fiefdom, wants to contribute to that. And what is their aim? Their aim is to get as much money and as many people and as much infrastructure and as much square foot as they possibly could in that business plan. And they're going to fight with everybody else in there to get their fiefdom to grow. And they're going to, you know, they're going to attack other people's fiefdoms and, hey, I figured out how to take Joe's department and, and borg it into mine. And, and it's all about this competitive thing to see who can get the most resources. What if you didn't have departments? What if you had function, a technology function instead of a technology function? And what are or technology function instead of apartment? And what if the function existed for one reason only? To serve the mission. So the, the former CEO gets everybody together and says, okay, here's the deal. Uh, I, I was, yesterday I was the CEO. I'm firing myself. I'm no longer the CEO. If you will rehire me, <laughs> so this gets scary right away. If you will rehire me, I would like to come back in as one of your, your strategic leaders. And I would suggest that the first change we would make if I'm the strategic leader, I would suggest that we now all serve one boss, the mission. Let's all say the mission statement together. And if it's a good mission statement, most of them aren't. A good mission statement is simply a statement of the, ben the, the biggest ben long-term benefit that your customers will get. Mm. What is it you do for your customers? That should, should be your mission statement. So let's, let's recite what it is, why we exist. We exist for our customers. Let's exist our customers. Let's recite our customers' marching orders. That's our mission statement. So we all recite it together and say, okay, going forward, that's the only boss left here. There's no other single boss in this company. No single individual can fire anybody. It's going to be teams of people hiring, teams of people letting people go. And we're all going to do it based on our allegiance to, this, to the one boss. So if you have a question about what you're doing, I would suggest the first thing you should do is ask your boss. Who's your boss? Let's all recite the mission statement. Okay, does this help us push the mission? Does buying this copier help us push the mission statement forward? I don't know. Okay, then ask other people around you. And, and let's get involved in the, the, the real structure of distributed decision-making that will change the way we do things. So management is, is built around fiefdoms competing for limited resources. If you do it with leadership, all of a sudden you find somebody, uh, you find that the, the technology function has people in it who are half in the technology function and maybe half in marketing. How'd that happen? Well, because there's no, there's no fiefdom. I don't have to guard my people or my budget. Mm. We just exist to get the thing done. And we found somebody over in, in marketing who has this incredible technology knack, they have this little thing they can do that we, we can't do. Hey, and so you go over there and you ask the people over there, hey, can we, can we take 25% of this person and put him in technology or her in technology? 
and we'll pay that 25%. You can pay, you know, whatever we have our budgets. And now you got somebody who's 30, you know, 30, 75% in marketing, 25% in technology, because we're just trying to get the darn um, a mission done. Yeah. That's the only thing driving us. And everybody gets compensated for how small they become. You get compensated more for how much more contribution you can make with, with fewer resources, fewer people, fewer square, less square footage. Just the opposite in a, in, that we, in the, for what a management company would get. Mm-hmm. You reduced your budget and your people by 50% this year, and the, and the technology function still works. Dan, we're gonna, you, know, you guys, are, we're going to blow your salaries off, off the top of the roof, and we're still going to make more money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No matter to. No, it's not possible for a manager to achieve that. No, no. And, and again, they're, they're in an unfair position. They are required. In order to make more money, they have to build their, their fiefdom. The more people and the more resources and the more uh, uh, budget they have, the more money they will make. So they, it, it's just it's inherent in the job that we're going to lead them down the wrong path. I've never really and, considered that, right? It's this double bind, isn't it? It's like, we're only going to promote you and you're only going to progress in this firm if you can prove to us that you can manage more and more people. That's right. And we're going to constantly hammer you to cut costs. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And yeah. people cost money. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, yeah. Smart companies, uh, even, even in companies where you have organic leadership, there are people who are not built to lead people who are otherwise incredible leaders of technology, vision, solving problems. Uh, there's a company here in Denver called CH2M Hill, and they have a parallel track to the leadership track. And it's, uh, I think they call it the fellows. And the fellows are people who, if they couldn't manage or lead their way out of a paper bag. You know, they're mm-hmm. dorks, if you want to you know, use it, uh, a pejorative, but they're incredible people. And they can solve incredible problems. And they have people, uh, they have fellows who are making exactly the same amount of money as people who are, uh, very highly compensated strategic leaders who have huge leadership responsibilities. And these people don't have anybody reporting to them. They just have huge responsibilities to solve problems. Yeah. But, you know, what if we compensated people for what they were good at instead of mm. developing a, 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 uh, a, uh, a system where only certain people who are really good at people could, could make their way? It's just, it's, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. And something that you just, just struck me as you talked about mission is it goes back to something you said earlier is that the problem that some firms make is they take things away and they add nothing in its place. In that example, you say we're going to take the CEO away, but we're going to replace him with the mission. Yeah. 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 So there's always something and you, and you should really, before the CEO actually resigns, you say, I'm going to resign or I'm going to change this. You should always add something first. So mm. the first thing you could add in a company, just to be very practical, the first thing you could add to begin to dismantle the the hierarchy would be a a uh, uh, a stakeholder led uh, a peer uh, peer review or peer kudos system, an yeah. appreciation system. One of the things that managers are the worst at is one of the the it comes to the top as the number one thing that will cause people to leave their company because they're not appreciated, and it's something that managers are not compensated for, and yet they're supposed to do it and they hate doing it, et cetera, et cetera. What if you just, before you got rid of any managers, you developed this idea of a, uh, a stakeholder-led team of people, uh, you have a team of people that volunteer to run the kudos program. And we're going to give everybody uh, a $10, you know, everybody in the company a $10 kudos card every month. And the rule is, I mean, I'm just making this up, but there's just so many ways to do this. The rule is you have to give it away to somebody you saw doing something that is not their job. And if you don't give it away by the end of the month, it expires. You throw it in the trash. And by the way, if you don't give it away, you don't get to re- you don't get to uh, 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 participate in the kudos program the, the next month. <laughs> <laughs> so you may have gotten some, but you're not going to get anything for it. Everybody has this ten dollar coupon, and they got a hundred people with a ten dollar coupon, and they all saw saw one guy doing something incredible. They all give this ten dollar coupon to this one guy. That makes an extra thousand dollars that week or that month for doing something that wasn't his job or her job. And what does that communicate? That's a positive thing that tells everybody, here's what everyone here appreciates. Uh, you know, we, we try and motivate people by trying to get them to fix their weaknesses. There's so much research about how that doesn't work. 
what if we motivated people by continually emphasizing things that were good? Mm. And so every month you had 15 people who got the, the hundred different kudos program or, or 50, they got, you know, a hundred of them and they all got two and you pick three or four of them and you, in your, your monthly town hall, you just emphasize, here's what Bob did. Yay, Bob. Here's what Sally did. Yay, Sally. And you're constantly reinforcing the positive and you're teaching people to reinforce each other. And it's genuine because it's not their job. When a manager uh, 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 gives somebody kudos, here's how it goes down. Hey, Bob, as he's walking by Bob's desk. Hey, Bob, great job you're doing there, buddy. And he keeps walking. He has no clue if Bob's doing a great job or not. He doesn't know what Bob's doing. Bob could be playing Angry Birds on his computer and he doesn't know. But it's his job to, to be encouraging people. If somebody goes to the, to the trouble of writing out, here's what I saw you do, and I appreciate it, and they're your peer, that's meaningful. Yeah, yeah. And it reinforces your good behavior and makes you want to do more of the right thing. That one thing begins to take something off the plates of managers before you ever even talk about replacing the hierarchy with something else. And you could, do, you could have six or eight of those things in place and then finally have the town hall and everybody would be looking around, including some of the managers would say, yeah, I don't know why I'm here either. I want to be a leader. So that sounds like a better thing for me. Can Let's turn me into a leader. So replacement therapy is much better than subtractional therapy. People run towards something, uh, they, they have gravitational pull. When they're running away from something, that gravitational pull will suck them back in. So we don't want to take things away before we add something. Yeah. And by the way, that's how you also eliminate the, the chaos. Yeah, yeah. You're giving a, a transition, right, it, it, yeah. over time. Yeah. If you but, want people to have a bridge across the chasm, you don't destroy the first bridge to build the second one. You build the first, you leave the first one in place while you build the second one. And then you just divert the traffic. Yeah, yeah. And it just it just just strikes me as you share that story is that I, I've worked with a, a major retailer here in the UK, and they have exactly that system, the peer system, but it's still within an industrial organisation context, right? right? And right. that one thing they see as being like a highlight of their culture, and indeed it is. I mean, it's a wonderful yeah. part of their culture. But I I think what's interesting to reflect on is they view it as a kind of incised incised in isolation as something that would be good to do for the people and for the culture right. without taking on this, this bigger vision of we could actually yeah. just destroy the whole thing. Yeah. It's one of the reasons Ricardo Assembler quit trying to help other companies do what he did in Brazil when he wrote his book and he was a, he was taken on as a, a some kind of professor-ish type of thing at Harvard. He quit doing all that because he found people, he found companies uh, picking and choosing the parts that they thought they could add without dismantling their power structure. That's and it doesn't, it doesn't work. In, mm. yeah, in, in, the, in the long run, it does not work. People will find you out. Uh, you know, there's this big, in the last 15 years, this, this big uh, push uh, to, uh, to get people engaged, the engagement practice. And there's lots of companies out there trying to sell their services as we will help you engage your people more. Well, engagement is nothing more than trying to get people to work harder for the same amount of money. <laughs> and, and they smell it. Engagement is not a process. It's a result. It's the result of treating people like humans and distributing the decision-making, allowing everybody to be an adult. And as you do that, you find out maybe we should, uh, uh, well, people will just be more productive that way. They'll, they'll engage themselves. Well, I, I think it can be that. But I also suspect sometimes it is because people do have some inkling deep in their soul that there's something wrong here. And it's yeah. from that impulse that they want to yeah. you know, improve the culture without yeah. necessarily seeing that there's an opportunity to, to just rethink it entirely. Yeah, there's the, our research, it's anecdotal, but it's pr pretty somewhat, somewhat accurate. I would say 20% of the people who are acting like brainless employees will will instantly kick in the minute that you bring this stuff to surface and will say, it's about time you treat me like an adult. And another 60% will get there very quickly. And then there's 10 to 15 to 20% who truly are lazy or whatever and don't want to be adults at work or at home. And they're never going to get on board with this. And those people will very quickly leave the company or the, they'll be voted off the island. Mm, mm, mm. Okay. I'm aware we're getting close to time to time here, Chuck. Um, and I know you've got another commitment. Um, wow. this is yeah, <laughs> such a 
but for for a guy who doesn't want to be labeled a speaker, you can speak. Yeah, I guess <laughs> I'm still a business guy who talks and writes about it. <laughs> yeah, you're a good. Uh, yeah, you're a good speaker as a business guy. Put it that way. Um. All right. Well, thank you. You know, thank you very much. So we haven't really talked about. So we'll put links to the books and the latest. The latest book, obviously, we'll 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 put out there. Uh, re, was it rehumanizing? Rehumanizing, rehumanizing workplace. workplace. Real quickly, re, real quickly, wine place is always a bad idea. That was more of a manifesto. That's a good overview of the who, what, where, and why of the participation age. Re, rehumanizing the workplace is the how. Mm. How do I actually build a company like this? There are 12 things we tell you to, you, you can do these 12 things and you will end up in the participation age company. So that's the add on book. To the other one. Here's the why, the who, the where, the what, but here's the how rehumanizing the workplace. Yeah, yeah. And it feels to me like um, you know, this why why employees are are a bad idea. There's there's so much um sort of meat in terms of research on on really why you should change, right? Like why why you should rethink how you're doing your business. So for people who want to um yeah. Yeah, the data is all on the side of it. The data's yeah. there. Yeah. The rationale's there, the data's there. Yeah. And then uh the Crankset Group, you know, that's a place where people can find you. Yeah, get your yeah, services. Do, yeah, I do help other people. I do have two businesses of my own, but I will help other uh, people figure this stuff out as well. And they can just find us at, at the Crankset Group or chuckblakeman.com is an easy place to look. Go yeah. to chuckblakeman.com. Brilliant. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you once again. Thanks for your time. Feels like I've experienced the tour de force. So uh, uh, I do hope uh, the, lesson, the listeners also uh, appreciate it. Uh, well, let's let's get everybody to join the participation age. I'm in. Yeah, I'm in. I'm participating. Great. Great. Thanks. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.